Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you again. It's been a joy to be able to preach and bring the word of the Lord to you these last few weeks. Yesterday, a group of us went to the beach, and Pastor Lance had asked me, he said, you know, hey, I'm looking at the weather tomorrow. Uh, next week, it's going to be about roughly the high 105. Uh, do you want to switch with me? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> because it is a gorgeous morning, um, and it's just been a joy and just really uh, a lot of fun being outside, uh, being able to worship together as a whole. Usually, obviously, we have two services, so be able to do this just as one corporate body has been a lot of fun. We've even made some new friends, our little beetle guy flying around. I didn't see him last week, by the way. Was he here? Was he here? He was hiding from me because I was actually wanted him to hang out with me on the pulpit. So, but I didn't see him. So, well, let us pray. Uh, one, uh, before we look at Genesis 3 one more time this morning. So let's pray. Lord, you are so kind. You are so gracious to us. We're thankful, Lord, uh, for your word, your inspired revelation. We're thankful, Lord, that it is sufficient. Lord, that it is powerful. So we pray, Lord, you would do a mighty work. Help our hearts to be in tune, our minds. Help us to focus, Lord, on the triune God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the weather, that it is cool this morning and that we can be together as a church to your glory. We ask and pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we will be concluding our study on Genesis 3. Uh, these past few weeks, what we've looked at is first is we did an overview of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we did that to start to really lay the foundation for chapter 3, uh, as well as to answer the creation question, the origin question. And that is, where do we come from? Who made us? What is our purpose? And we saw how Genesis 1 and 2 answers those questions very clearly. That we were made by the living God. The God who exists. The God who is light and life. He is the one who made us. We didn't make ourselves. And this God who made us, he made us in his very image. And he made us to glorify him. This is why you and I were made. This is our purpose. This is why we exist. To glorify God. To honor him. We've also looked at, these last couple weeks, 19 of the 24 verses in Genesis 3. What we first looked at when we started chapter 3 was verses 1 through 7, which was all about the temptation. How the serpent, which was Satan in disguise, possessing this body of this snake deceived the woman, how he tricked her into eating the forbidden fruit and then she gave to her husband and then he partook with her as well. Then we saw in verses 8 through 13, which was all about the confrontation, how God examined the couple through asking questions to elicit a confession so they could repent of their sin, turn from their sin. But as we saw, sadly, they refused to take full ownership of their actions. And they blame others for their transgression. Then last week, we looked at the curse and the judgment. We saw how God rendered a threefold judgment against the serpent, the woman, and the man. The man and the woman's judgment consisted of pain, difficulty, struggle, that would fall on their main circles of operation. For the woman, it would be pain in childbirth, 
difficulty in marriage. For the man, the ground will be cursed. So work, labor will be filled with challenge, exhaustion, and fatigue. The man is then told he will return to the ground. For God said, for you are dust and dust you shall return. This means he's going to die. Death is what awaits him. This all reveals the consequences of sin. But God does not take sin lightly. It's not a small thing to God, for it is an offense to him. Now, before we looked at the judgment of the man and the woman, we saw the judgment, the curse that was put upon the serpent. We saw how it was first applied to the animal. That's the snake, the reptile. That it was cursed more than all the animals because this physical object was the agent used in the temptation. Second, this curse was directly applied to the sinister spirit behind the snake, which was Satan. This was the devil. Satan was given judgment for his part for the role that he played in tempting the woman. And within this judgment announcement, we saw that God used this as the very platform to proclaim a precious promise, a glorious victory, a prophecy about the gospel, about the coming of the Messiah, who will defeat the serpent and restore and fix all that sin has affected. Within this divine curse, you have the first gospel promise. You have a promise about the Savior, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one true Savior. The only Savior, the scriptures proclaim. Jesus made this clear that he alone is the Savior. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by through me. Acts 4.12, there's no salvation under no name except the name of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.12 says, he who has the Son has life. The scriptures make it clear that Christ is the one who saves, for no human work will do it. You coming to church enough will not save you. You taking communion, you getting baptized will not save you. You helping your neighbor's groceries, which is a nice thing to do, will not save you. No religious ceremonial act will save you. For only Christ can save. The scriptures are clear. And this Christ who saves is first proclaimed here in the middle of a judgment. A judgment against Satan. Declaring to him, you have lost. You have not won. This is why Genesis 3 is so important. The most important chapter in the entire Bible. Because as Genesis 1 and 2 answers that creation question, Genesis 3 answers that fall question. Now, not the season fall, but our fall from grace. Our fallenness, our lostness from God. It answers what went wrong. And the answer is sin. Because the couple disobeyed God. They went against him. They went their own way. That's the answer. It is sin. When people ask, well, what's the issue? What, what's happening in the world today? 
with all the riots, hurricanes, fires. Uh, what does that show? Is it just because of mental health? Poor education? Not, you know, poor parenting? Which some of those things absolutely can be true. The ultimate answer for the reason and the problems that are taking place, it is sin. That is what is wrong with the world. But Genesis 3 also answers the solution question. That is, how is this fixed? How is this restored? And the answer to that is Christ. That's the answer. Who's first proclaimed in Genesis 3.15. Who's the primary seed of the woman. The one who defeats Satan. The one who gives us eternal salvation. Christ is the answer. That's why this chapter is so important. Without a Genesis 3 worldview, you won't be able to answer correctly the fall question and the redemption question because both are laid out for us in this chapter. And this chapter really sets the stage for the beginning of the redemptive saga that fills up the rest of the scripture. It reveals to us the glorious beginning of God's salvation plan, how that all begins, a story of God's grace. Now, some of you may say, well, since we've covered all of that these last four weeks, what's left to cover? What's, what's left to go over? Well, we still have some very important truths and lessons to learn this morning before we close this chapter, such as a final consequence to the sin that was committed. But we will also see more of an overflow of grace because grace continues to overwhelm this section of Scripture. This passage in the final verses of Genesis 3 is really known as the removal, the exile, or the banishment of the couple from the garden, which is an accurate title, an accurate description in terms of what happens. But we could also refer to these final verses as a conclusion of grace, a ending of grace, a climax of grace, and how God once again deals with this first couple. So let's look at verses 20 through 24. It reads, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of, of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Verse 20 opens up by giving us Adam's response to the judgments that were just announced. Judgments that had major ramifications and significant and serious effects on the man and the woman moving forward. This is going to be the conditions from life, for life from now on. With regards to Adam, the last time we heard him talking was in verse 12. 
Remember what he said in verse 12? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. This is Adam speaking. And what he is saying here is he's blaming. He's blaming first his wife. He's blaming the woman. And then he's even blaming God for his sin. He's clearly not confessing his crime here, expressing a godly sorrow, or repenting from the evil that he has committed. No, rather he is shifting the blame, putting the responsibility elsewhere on the woman and on God. This is the last time we heard him speak. For last week, verses 14 through 19, what we looked at, we didn't hear him talk at all because God wasn't asking questions for God was giving judgment, laying out the consequences to sin. So it wasn't a time to ask questions. It wasn't a time for Adam and Eve to speak, for them to engage, for them to talk. It was, a now, it was a time for them to listen and to hear judgment being applied. So we didn't hear from Adam. So the question comes is, what is Adam's response? What does he do? What does he say? Is it more blame shifting? Is it more hiding like he's done? Or maybe it's something new. Maybe it's something similar to like Cain's response in Genesis 4. How he said his punishment was too severe after he murdered his brother Abel. He said it was too harsh once God judged him. Is that Adam's response? Especially in light of the judgment that was just stated. What does Adam say? Well, surprisingly, it's none of those responses. He doesn't hide. He doesn't blame. He doesn't say the punishments on him or the woman are too extreme. He doesn't say any of that. What it simply says about Adam's responses is that he called his wife's name Eve. The name Eve means life or life giver, which is the opposite of death. He calls her this because the text tells us that she was the mother of all the living. This is Adam's response, the naming of his wife Eve. And this response is a rather significant one because it demonstrates a change. A change has taken place with Adam because this is not the same response he had earlier. The hiding, the blaming, refusing to take ownership, refusing to take responsibility of what he has done. This indicates a change. It indicates an act of faith on Adam's behalf. Adam is showing by giving his wife's name, Eve, the mother of all the living, life, the life giver, he is showing that he believes God here. That he believes specifically the promise that is made in verse 15 about a coming redeemer, a Messiah to come, which is the primary seed of the woman. Adam understood the significance of God's word stated in that promise. He understood that a future offspring would indeed come who would crush the head of the serpent. He understood that though there is pain for the woman in childbirth, 
God is still giving grace because more life is to come. More people are to come. And one of these would be the Savior, the light of the world. Adam is showing his faith in God now with the naming of Eve. This is really a response of hope. It's a shout of belief. Adam is not focusing on the consequences of his sin or Eve's sin, which there were clear consequences as we looked at last week. But he's not focused on that. He's rather focused and consumed on this special offspring to come. That is what has his attention, which is a sign of repentance. Because when one is truly repentant, they don't care about the consequences that are to come. Their focus is on Christ and the fact that they have forgiveness of sin. That's a sign of repentance. And we see that with Adam. For Adam has now learned to trust God. And this trust did come through a very hard lesson, a difficult one, to embrace God's word and faithful obedience. But he does, and Adam's attitude has changed. Now he's casting himself on the mercy of God, trusting him to save. And this isn't just Adam. Eve shares this faith too. Look at Genesis 4.1. It says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Eve's response here is not only one of gratitude for her child, but also one of hopeful anticipation that maybe this child will be that promised redeemer. Maybe this child will be the one to restore all that sin has messed up. She even expresses this again, because clearly that wasn't Cain. In Genesis 4.25, at the end, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. She's hoping each time she has a child, maybe it's this one. Maybe this one will be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. She, like Adam, is showing that same faith, showing her faith as well. She believes too. It's God's grace and mercy has changed this couple, had changed them from blamers to believers Hiding to embracing God. His grace truly is powerful. And it can change anybody. It's such a reminder for us that we need to have. Because we can forget that. Especially with that unsaved family member, that close friend, that loved one, we can get discouraged. They're never going to get saved. I've shared the gospel with them again and again and again. I've lived it out, of course, not not perfectly, but consistently. They are just shut off. They're never going to get saved. How do you know that? You don't know what seeds you may be planting, and you don't know how his grace, his word, which does not return void, you don't know how it may not change their heart in the future. Don't grow weary. 
don't become discouraged. And even for us as Christians, we can become discouraged, right? With just the long process of sanctification going, this sin is never going to go away. It's just never going to go. But he who has begun a good work in you, he is faithful to complete it. And though it is a slow process, God is working in you, believer, to make you more like his son, day by day. Be faithful, though. Continue to endure. Continue to persevere. And be patient, especially be patient with others as God continues to mold them into the image of his precious son. In the next verse, verse 21, his grace shines again. We see God in response to their faith provides a covering for their nakedness. In a practical sense, this was to protect them in this new hostile environment, in this new harsh world outside of Eden that they would have to live in from now on. It was also to cover up their shame, their embarrassment. For clothing signifies that they have sinned against God. They have rebelled against him, and the garments give us a picture of that. But we need to ask a question pertaining to these garments. Where did they come from? Who or what is the source? Well, the text tells us that these garments are made of skin. Which a garment made of skin, especially in the context of the nation of Israel, the Mosaic law, would point to the skin of an animal. Especially the skin of an animal that would be offered up for sin and atonement, then reserved for the priest. Leviticus, all of your favorite books, chapter 7, verse 8 tells us just that. It says, also the priest who presents any man's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has presented. The language of this points to sacrificial language. The garments of the skin came from living animals. Animals that in all likelihood would have been in the garden. Animals that Adam had named and demonstrated authority over. Animals that had to die. Animals that had to be killed. Though this passage doesn't specifically say these animals were slain to provide these coverings, it is a justified and warranted, really, implication that certain animals were indeed slain to produce this covering. Remember earlier how we saw how Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves that they had put together, which was a pathetic attempt to try to cover up their nakedness, their shame, it was inadequate. It was insufficient. But here, the covering is not done by Adam and Eve. They don't do this. They don't contribute to it. For this covering is done by God. This is executed by God and God alone. For this is his sovereign work, his providential work, that God covered this couple. This was God doing this. And that God had to kill some of the animals that he created to make these garments. Which is, again, that, that reminder for us that there is a price to pay with sin. For blood had to be shed. 
to cover this man and this woman. What you have here is the first physical deaths that occur in Scripture. In general, in life, period, the first physical deaths that take place. And it really should be the man and the woman who die. But instead, it's these animals that do. And as they die, there's a strong possibility that these animals were slaughtered before the very eyes of Adam and Eve, that they witnessed their deaths. These animals who die here point to a system, really the the system of animal sacrifices that are laid out for us in the book of Leviticus, the book of the law, that animals would die in the place of the sinner as a substitute and a sacrifice to temporarily atone for sin. The shedding of blood is required to remove sin. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 tells us, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is blood, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So there had to be a substitute. There had to be a sacrifice for sin to be atoned for. That's what the system of animal sacrifices shows us. The garments of the skin coming from these killed animals in the garden pointed to that reality. And in fact, it anticipated that system and revealed the bloody cost of atonement. But these animal deaths in the garden that day even foreshadowed to something more. And that is the eventual sacrificial death of Christ as an atonement for our sin. It points to Christ as our substitute. It points to Christ as our sacrifice. It points to the fact that he died for us, that he provides a covering for our guilt. For Christ provides his own righteousness as a garment that covers all those who trust in him as Savior. This is the method of divine grace. God's provision in dealing with sin and its consequences, that God in his divine wisdom is able to cover our sin and clothe us in the righteousness of his son. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, such a picture of the gospel says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3.27 says that we are clothed with Christ. That is a biblical description of justification. And there's this great narrative display of justification given to us in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, which you have a courtroom scene here. It says this in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. So he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. 
Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is a heavenly courtroom scene here. With Joshua, the high priest is a picture of the nation of Israel. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. This is the divine messenger of the Lord, which is described for us really as the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord is God the Son. And at the right hand of Joshua is Satan, doing what Satan does, accusing. He's the slanderer, the accuser of the brethren. And he's doing this because of his filthy garments, which represents moral depravity, moral wickedness. But these will be discarded. These will be removed and replaced with pure ones. Pure robes, pure garments, righteous ones. That is justification. That is what happens at the moment of salvation. Your sin is replaced with his righteousness and you are declared not guilty. And so we stand complete, as Philippians 3, 9 says, not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Christ. That is justification. And one of the great results of justification is that it is permanent. It is secure. It can't be changed. It can't be undone. Romans 8, 31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. No charge will stand against you, even though Satan is still accusing you. It will not hold because you are justified and you are secure. And Christ is still at the right hand of God making intercession for you at this very moment. He is interceding for you. Christ is keeping you. Many people ask, can we lose our salvation? Can we fade away? And I love what MacArthur says, if you could lose it, you would. But the fact that you don't lose it is because Christ is keeping you. Christ is a perfect intercessor who will not fail. He will bring bring to completion those who he has saved. As Adam and Eve's covering was sufficient in the garden, so too is the righteousness of Christ sufficient to cover our sin. Now after the Lord gives these garments to the couple, we're given a sneak peek into the inner counsels of the Trinity. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. As in Genesis 1, 26 Counsel was recorded to give insight into the decision to create man, where it says, let us make man in our image. Now, counsel by the triune God is revealed 
as to why the man and the woman are to exit the garden. For the triune God recognized that the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. What Satan had promised to Eve, a knowledge, an insight, had become partially true. For the man and the woman had become like God, but the likeness to God was not sought obediently because it came through an unlawful act. For the couple had sought moral autonomy, being a law unto themselves, the power to decide right from wrong apart from God and his word. And because they've done this, they know evil now. That is true. But they know it from experience. They know it from rejecting God's word. And God makes that clear by saying the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This is a statement not made in mockery, not made in ridicule, but really in sadness in light of what the couple has done because of what they have done. For God now will act further to drive out the man from the garden. Yes, the man and the woman did believe now. They were repentant as we established earlier. But this is to protect the couple, to protect them from eating from the tree of life. So to prevent this, the couple must be banished from the garden because eating from the tree of life would permanently keep them in their sinful condition. It would keep them in their sinful state, which is an unbearable thought. Imagine remaining in sin forever with no hope for change, freedom, or liberation. For if they ate from the tree, they would be like the fallen angels with no chance for redemption. That's why God wastes no time here in removing the couple from the garden. Verse 23 says, Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground which he was taken. In this verse, this is the last consequence we see of the results of sin in this chapter. The couple must be exiled, signifying in a way really their alienation, their separation from God. For sin separates. It divides us, as we see with, the, with God and the couple. But still, though that's all true, Grace is still present in this act. For God has taken the initiative to prevent them, to protect them from eating and remaining in sin. This is still an act of grace at the same time that it is a consequence. And it is a consequence for they will be expelled and expulsion for the man meant he must work for the ground in order to sustain life. It's going to be much harder. Before he was able just to tend cultivate the prepared habitat. Now he has to work hard to develop his own garden by working from the ground that is under divine curse. It's going to be difficult, challenging, and miserable at times. For that is always the pathway of sin. We now move to our final verse to close out the chapter. And it opens up by telling us once again that God drove out the couple from the garden as an act of consequence, an act of protection. The verse tells us that God had a barrier, a guard that would be set up at the east of the garden so that even if the man and the woman, even if they tried or wanted to re-enter, they couldn't. 
the couple were exiled from the garden forever. And to secure it, it says God placed at the east of the garden cherubim. Cherubim were placed at the east of the garden. Now cherubim are angelic figures that are associated with the very presence of God. We see them referenced in Ezekiel chapter 10 and alluded to in Ezekiel 1 with God's presence. We also see golden images of them which were placed on the covering of the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God was uniquely or especially revealed in the most holy place both in the tabernacle and in the temple. Cherubim also decorated the curtain of the curtains of the Holy of Holies which showed their association with the presence of God and their guarding of the presence of God. These cherubim then are placed to protect re-entrance into the garden to make sure no intruders come in, prohibiting sinners' access to him, showing there is no way on their own to enter the garden, for it is fully secure. It is closed off. And it's closed off to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the final words of this chapter. That's how the chapter ends. Showing the excommunication of the man and the woman from the presence of the creator because of their sin. That's how it concludes. As I've stated quite a few times, including this morning throughout our study, chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 is the most important chapter in the entire Bible. Because again, it shows us how we have fallen. It tells us what went wrong what the problem is with the world and with us. Without this, very without this very chapter, really, the answer wouldn't make much sense. But this chapter, as we have seen, not only tells us what is wrong, it also declares to us the solution, the redemption, the restoration. It makes clear that not all hope is lost because of God. Because of his grace. This is a chapter so filled with his grace. When we tend to think of Genesis 3, what we tend to think of is the fall, temptation, sin, judgment, the curse, the serpent, which is true. That, that's all true. That's all described for us. But do not miss that this is a chapter that is glowing with grace, overflowing with it. The evidence is certain. We see this starting with God, seeking out the couple after they have sinned, asking them questions, showing his patience, showing that he is, a, uh, by, by nature, a saving God, giving the first gospel promise in verse 15 that the seed of the woman would be the Savior, covering the man and the woman with sufficient clothing, pointing once again to the cross of Christ and justification, removing them from the garden, another act of grace to protect them so that they could be redeemed. Even in the midst of all the judgment, this is a chapter that the gospel still shines forth. There's one more observation we need to make before we close. 
And that's the last words we see of this chapter. And last words we see are of the tree of life. That's how it ends. Referencing the tree of life. That's not the last time we see the tree of life, though, is it? For we see it again. Revelation 22. Reads in verse 1, Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as a crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That tree of life appears again at the end. For Adam and Eve, there is no going back to the garden. But as we look at Revelation 22, Revelation 21 as well, the future is bright. Because through that primary seed, the primary seed of the woman, who is the second Adam, who is Christ, our exile, our separation, our banishment from the presence of God will be over. And what Revelation 22 tells us is that access to the tree of life will be granted again. It shows us, guess what? God has won. And all that sin has messed up, all that sin has distorted, it will be gone. For we will be in his presence forever and ever worshiping him. And as we worship him, it will be without corruption. There will be no more pain, no tears, no sorrow, no viruses, no illnesses, no mask wearing, no social distancing, no cancer, no hurricanes, no fires. No earthquakes, no racism, no riots, no death, no sin. And in addition to that, not only will will it be the absence of those things, he will continue for all eternity marveling us with his grace. Ephesians 2.7 says that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. As grace will continue to shine in eternity as it did in the garden that day. It doesn't get any better than that. Any better than that. You know, our times are very uncertain right now. Filled really with a 
a lack of hope. You need something to have hope in. You need an identity to live by. This is it. This is it. This is what matters. For us as Christians, this life is the only hell we will ever know. For we were made for glory. For the non-believer though, this is the only heaven they will know. But praise God, he has given us grace. I was talking to Amanda recently and just telling me the longer and longer I am a Christian, the more I see this home is really not our home. Our home is resided for us in glory, for our citizenship is with our Savior. And I'm looking forward to that day when I see Christ, aren't you? Face to face. And guess what? When we're with him, nothing will take it away. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are glorious, you are kind, you are gracious, and so worthy of our worship and praise. Keep our eyes on you. Lord, your word tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. Help us not to forget that. Help us, Lord, not to tune that out. Help us not to be consumed by other things that we forget the greatness of the gospel. Mold us more into the image of Christ and help us until you call us home. Maybe that's today. Maybe that's tomorrow. Maybe that's next week or next month. Help us to be faithful, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith until the end. To your glory, we love you, we praise you in your name. Amen. It's been a privilege to do this series with you. Hope you have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you guys next week.